0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to today's episode of The Fourth Leg, a tabletop gaming podcast all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. My name's Hunter, as I would hope you know since you're listening to season two of the show. (gasps) (laughs) Surprise! Surprise! And I'm joined today by our lovely co-hosts, Joe and Kelsey. Say hello. How's it going, guys? Hello, Joe and Kelsey. There's always one in the group. Always. Always. And we're honored to welcome our guest to the show, the storyteller for one of my favorite actual play podcasts, Lex from Path of Night. Lex, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your show.
1: Hey, uh, I'm Lex, HSC of Path of Night. I run a an actual play that is set in 1999 about a found family quartery sort of struggling with, you know, their night to night unlives and the coming apocalypse.
0: Oh, wonderful. Uh, if you guys haven't listened to Path of Night yet, please go do that. It's an amazing show. Uh, but with that, let's go get into our fun facts today. The question today that we'll be answering is if you could meet or have a meal with any celebrity, who would it be? I, I'm assuming for this it can be any celebrity from any time period. Joe, why don't you kick us
2: off? oh man you threw me for a loop when you said any time period I was just like oh yeah somebody alive that's that seems pretty cool and now hunter has like totally put me on the spot uh, no I'm gonna I'm gonna roll with my original answer uh, so obviously I enjoy uh, the MCU films uh, hunter and I have uh, kicked the ball around a couple times about uh, things we like and don't like about them but I think it would be really cool to meet uh, with Chris Hemsworth uh, first of all he's really he seems a lot funnier than people give him credit for uh he's a mm. very large good looking man uh but he's actually really clever and funny in a lot of moments too uh so i think it'd be really cool to like get to meet with him and actually kind of pick his brain a little bit stuff that he's interested outside of you know making 17 marvel movies a year <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah all right kelsey
0: why don't you follow up
3: well that any time period thing definitely threw me for a loop um <laughs> So okay, I have like a a top three, and it rotates depending on my mood and the day. So mm-hmm. my top three people who I, I would got
2: top three.
3: Uh, yeah, the, no. Pick, would, one. Like, pick one. Pick <laughs> one. I had to pick the, one. You all pick right, one. fine. The 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 people who I would want to like have coffee with or have lunch with and just chat with them. I'll go with the first answer that came to mind. Hayao Miyazaki. I want to see how much of a grumpy curmudgeon he actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have heard legends.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I have Mm -hmm. heard a lot of those same legends that he's fantastic and horrible to work for in equal parts.
3: Yeah. And I just, I just, I really want to talk with this man just to, like, get an idea of why that is and how he ticks. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Lex. If you could meet or have a meal with any celebrity, who would it be?
1: So my knee-jerk reaction, uh, because I'm I'm also a big fan of the MCU, was actually mm-hmm. Chris Evans, uh, uh, oh, nice. who because when call. he was first like announced to be the guy that was going to play Captain America, there was a lot of people that were like, "What?" Mm-hmm. Him, and mm-hmm. uh, he did so good, and I just I just want to hear all the stories. But the person that I, I think I would actually uh, want to have like coffee with is Wesley Snipes all the way mm-hmm. that okay, guy yeah. has all kinds Pretty of cool. stories and has played such awesome roles and i mean obviously he also did blade and you know i'm a big mm-hmm. fan of that so mm-hmm. uh, i would have to i'd have to pick him
3: uh he was also in uh believe it or not he was in this little movie uh called to wong fu thanks for everything julie Newmar. Yep. that mm-hmm. movie was my childhood <laughs> so that that's how yeah. i know him
1: and he's like an actor with a range that he could be, he could literally <laughs> nail that role yes. and then turn around and be an action star with like yeah. a really gruff tone and attitude. He's perfect. I, I he could him. in
3: one turn be a drag queen and then turn around yep. and be a badass vampire.
1: Yeah, and they're both amazing movies and he absolutely nailed both
0: roles.
3: Yes. <sighs> yeah.
0: And Good I love choice. a self-aware star too, because if you remember the incredible movie trilogy that was The Expendables, Wesley Snipes showed up and- they were like, what'd you go to prison for? Did you kill somebody? Oh, Did you blow evasion. somebody up? And he's like, tax evasion. <laughs> which is actually what he went to jail for. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: I I love The Expendables. It was better for him.
0: Ugh. Oh, yes. Uh, if I could sit down and have a meal with anybody, and, and I think it's in the same kind of vein as, as Miyazaki for you, Kelsey. Okay. I think I would want to sit down with Stanley Kubrick.
3: Yeah. Because it
0: could be really interesting. That would be. Even though Stanley Kubrick was awful to work with Uh, and i would never wish that upon anybody Mm -hmm. the man was a visionary he changed the game as far as it came to filmmaking him and hitchcock are probably two of the most influential directors ever Mm -hmm. so just sitting down and being like okay so besides mentally abusing your actors how do you view the world of film like how how do you do that yeah i I think it would be really interesting to have a Mm -hmm. conversation with him
3: uh, to to be fair, Alfred Hitchcock was also known to not be particularly mm-hmm. kind to actors. <laughs> yes. Um, the, nope. there, he was actually quoted in an interview where he was like, I never said that actors are cattle. I said actors should be treated like cattle. <laughs> There's not a difference.
0: Anyways.
2: <laughs> <laughs> They're on the same
0: level. <laughs> About, yeah. So, with that done, uh, why don't we go ahead and get into today's topic. So, today, on The Fourth Leg, we will be discussing narration, verbal imagery, and how voice affects pace. So, in our typical fashion, I want to invite our guest to start us off. Lex, what are your thoughts on today's, I guess we'll call it a trio of topics?
1: So, I, I actually think it's critical, right, when setting a scene, because a lot of times if players are reduced to role playing in a white room Mm -hmm. with where there's nothing going on. Conversations kind of get stale. They don't feel terribly inspired to pursue whatever's going on in that scene. But when you start to like describe, you know, the rain or the way the pavement like sounds when they like walk across it towards their destination, even those little things really start to kind of turn it up. And then when the NPCs have certain voices and it all really kind of comes together. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like how like and when reading a novel, it can't just be a list of events.
0: Yes. And I think light is a really interesting thing to describe when you're setting a scene. Um, so I, I think of John Wick. Right. Fantastic movies besides this. But in John Wick 2, there are scenes towards like the middle ish end of the movie that are lit either as red or blue. And the red scenes are where John Wick is losing, he's on the back foot, he's running away, you know, you're unsure he's getting hurt. And then the blue ones are when he's prepared and he's ahead of the game and he's winning and nobody can touch him. And just from those small lighting shifts, and it's all like monochrome lighting, it's just either red or blue, just from those small lighting shifts, the entire feeling of the movie changes. And doing that in your game, I think, can... can do that as well. So describing a forest as, you know, light filtering through the trees, barely any making it down to you without a green hue to it, can really just set that image, even if it's a simple one, in the minds of the players. And it takes away a lot of that white backdrop.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We use, like, for uh, the the podcast, we tend to... I tend to not have it actually just be the ST describing it, too. Mm -hmm. So... If we're headed into like a, a PC's personal area, we kind of use it as an opportunity to say things about the character to their fellow players that their PCs might be able to pick up on. So, in the case of like one PC, you know, they, they kept all of their records that they had in life and live in a room that is like just this very small, stony, cement floored hideout that has like a cot and the record player. So he would go in and kind of describe some of the bands that they see and kind of really kind of give a feel for what world this person came from before they had become a vampire.
0: Mm-hmm. And an important thing to remember when you're setting a scene is that your players are part of your storytelling, right? So we've we've talked about it on the show a few times, and it's something you see a lot when you talk about GMing is collaborative storytelling or collaborative scene setting include your players in that so I don't do it often but every so often I'll be like okay all the players go around tell me one thing about the room you're in or tell me one thing about this city or tell me one thing about this scene and it brings everybody in and it takes a lot of the load off of your shoulders as a GM or storyteller to come up with everything and make it all unique because instead of one mind working you have five or six
3: Excuse me while I write that down so I can take that into my next campaign.
0: (laughs) Hey, see, you know, show's already working. Shared storytelling, and it really inspires players. Yes, absolutely. Feeling involved is a big deal for a player.
3: Oh, absolutely.
0: All right. Kelsey, do you have anything to add to this, or do you want to get into your stuff?
3: a question that I would ask is um, for the new GMs out there, I can already hear new GMs out there being like, but how do yeah. <laughs> how do do that? <laughs> how do I descriptively tell the thing and have it be good because either I stumble with words or either I didn't think about it that far ahead or all oh, my players went to this area that I did not Visually prepare for, like,
2: uh, what I've do? got something I've got something for that. If sure, you, unless you okay. So, uh, one thing that I do, uh, I've been running a Rhapsody of Blood game, which is, uh, it's a powered by the apocalypse system very heavily themed around like Castlevania or JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, where it's a lot of like lineages like going through this big castle or establishment to like fight against the big, big bad every, every generation. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I do is when I build these, like, layers for these big bosses, basically, uh, I pick two, like, feels for it. And that's something that I, like, I write down in my campaign journal is, like, hey, like, these are my two initial, like... So, for example, like, I had a dark chapel, and so I picked Hushed, so, like, it's a church, it's very, like, somber and quiet. uh, And then, like, it's unholy because it's, you know, being you know corrupted by these other you know beings and okay. then i literally just go and g- go a thesaurus and be like okay cool what are some words that are on the same level as hush what, what are some words that are synonymous with unholy so that when you're describing these things or you're trying to answer a piece you know a player's question you can use these other words like you can have a cheat sheet of these like you know five to ten terms for each one it's like hey you know, what do I see? Oh, well, you know, the altar looks, you know, corrupt and depraved as, you know, they're praying before it. Like, you can speak to those things, and literally it's, you know, a minute or two of prep work as you kind of just double-check some synonyms. Like, it's it's really easy prep work, but it, it helps you in the long run because you're not just saying dark and spooky over and over again.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, confidence is actually a huge thing. So, like, you know how you mentioned that... If you stutter or have get worried that you're not going to convey a description right, you kind of have to recognize that the players at your table have made the effort to be there because they're excited to hear your story. So, so long as you sound like you're having a good time, and you are painting a scene, and you are, uh, you feel like you know, evocative, they're going to eat it up. You know, you can, you can describe them. They're coming to, like, you know, the corner of, of a sidewalk. And if, if you sound excited to describe, like, the cars stop coming by or the way people are looking at them awkwardly from across the street or the way that, like, you know, the clouds seem to be, like, darkening and there's this rumbling noise that they can now hear overhead, they're going to eat it up. So, like, don't be afraid to add a description. And so long as you're having a good time, that's going to come through in the description. They're going to enjoy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that if you aren't practiced in using very verbose language, right, it doesn't need to be super complex SAT words that you're throwing out all over mm-hmm. the place. Two things that help me a lot when I'm improving descriptions are simplicity and contrast, right? Okay. So. Keeping words simple, and then how does this place contrast from the last place that you came from? Uh, So let's take a sci-fi setting, for example. Okay. You're in uh, a very far future, like Meet the Robinsons, bright and poppy and uh, pastel overground, right? You're walking around the city and everything is beautiful and clean. And then you have to go into a cellar or a shop. The... Passing of that threshold can be marked by the stark contrast of the outside versus the inside or the overground versus the underground. So instead of bright and poppy and pastel, you go down into this sewerscape or you go into this dingy bar and you describe things as bleak and rough and the smell is different. You know, just those small things here and there. And it doesn't need to be like, oh, the gravelly texture under your fingers as you run your hand down the stone wall. It can just be, it's grimy, um, you see moss coming up the walls, and you're in a sewer, right? And yeah. that is enough contrast to set the top apart from the bottom or the previous away from the current. Because people know what a sewer looks like. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to describe what a sewer tunnel looks like. Right. It's, it's kind of known language, So you need to describe what sets it apart from where they just were rather than a deep detailed description of how a tree looks, right?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I have found helpful in adding descriptors is engaging in what I call the top five senses because obviously Mm -hmm. we have more than five senses in our body, but the top five are like sight, smell, taste, touch, and feel or whatever that fifth one is sound sound hearing yeah it eludes me but um uh whenever it's like okay i'm visually describing it but i can't just stop at the visuals what are some of the sounds that they hear what are some of the smells that they smell what does it feel like as they are walking what's what sounds are coming underfoot but also what does the ground feel like in the campaign that I'm running right now, I like to kind of mess around with the player's uh, sensations in one particular area, which I call "not," which is the space between worlds, because "not" is a, a creative void where anything is possible. So, like, I mm. can describe it as the ground looks like pencils with their points pointing upward, but it feels like you are walking on plush carpet. And playing around with juxtapositions of that, that can set the mood too, because wait, I'm seeing one thing, but feeling another. So that's one way that you can also jar the player's expectations of a scene is playing with, like what you said before, uh, Hunter, is contrast. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I tend to, so that's actually like perfect for when describing some sort of like supernatural event. Mm -hmm. Right. So like when, when characters head somewhere that's not like uh something that they're overly familiar with whether it's you know another dimension another realm or uh you know deep underwater mm-hmm. uh i really like to denote the specific absence of certain things that they might notice so for example if they go into an area they might not hear anything mm-hmm. like sound just doesn't seem to travel here or i'll lean on like a sixth sense Like, so, like, if if they go into, like, a corrupted cathedral, I might specify that they get these chills up their spines as they enter, or that this place feels remarkably cold despite it being, like, a summer day. And it kind of gets the point across without having to be right on the nose about it. I don't have to be like, this place is bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Instead, instead I I go into description on, you know, how it feels, what it's like.
3: But you can keep it just vague enough that you don't have to elaborate on it, but they get the mood.
1: Mm. Right, and their imagination will just kind of backfill the rest.
3: Yep. So that is, that is something to note, too, is sometimes you don't have to go into overly flowery descriptions. Sometimes if you set the mood just right, the players can fill in the gaps for you in their imagination holes. <laughs>
1: yeah, and it can be important to pacing, too. You don't mm. want to over-describe every mm-hmm. single room mm-hmm. because then they're not actually getting to the point where they're playing the game.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
2: they get worried about what's over there in the corner. Oh, that that sounds important. He described it. It must be it must be meaningful. Mm-hmm. No, no, I was yeah. just painting a picture.
3: Just thinking about the chair incident from Critical Role Campaign Two, where they go into this scene where like everything is a disaster, but there's one perfectly placed chair in the middle of the room and everyone spends about twenty minutes over analyzing this chair. Yeah. Yeah. Because the description was put there why is it important? Mm -hmm.
0: And I think something that can help with that a little bit is, I I don't know quite the right term for it. So I'll use like overarching description and then specific description, right? So let's say you go into a factory. Mm -hmm. A factory is going to have a certain aesthetic to it. So when they first enter the factory, you can take a little bit of time describing what is the aesthetic of this factory that's going to be your overarching idea right so the factory is a lot of gray and you know there's a lot of warehouse noise going on um, all the doors are swinging doors and that's going to be a consistent follow-through in pretty much every room that they do so you don't need to describe the factory noise in every room anymore you don't need to describe the gray scale in the room anymore <laughs> but when they get into the individual rooms all you have to describe is what makes that one different so you enter into a hallway you do your overarching aesthetic description you go into an office what's different about it there are desks there are rolly chairs there are a couple of computers that are about eight years out of date you go into the next room. Oh, this is the warehouse room. There's a bunch of machinery moving around, etc., so on and so forth. But you never have to describe that overarching description again. You don't need to describe the noise or the cacophony of sounds that are going on in every single room. You just need to describe what's different about this one and the next one. And that can help out a lot to avoid the chair scenario where you're <laughs> over-describing everything. It's a real thing. You know, there's, there's an aesthetic that's already kind of set
3: that when you were talking about overarching i was like uh is the word you're looking for like umbrella description
0: yeah actually that works (laughs) that works great all right joe i so we have a note sheet and joe (laughs) has a lot of notes and i'm excited to hear about them because joe always says things that make me think a little bit harder about a topic so joe i invite you please
2: with no pressure
0: at all (laughs)
2: I'm unnecessarily complicating things. So, obviously, (laughs) setting the tone uh, early on is important. One thing that that hits me, uh, so when we were told that we were going to have Lex on the the show, I did uh, go uh, listen to some Path of Night, and it's uh, very excellent. But they they kick the show off every time uh, by talking about uh, that they've had a discussion as a table and that they, they these are the things that are going to be in their game. These are the tones that, that are going to occur. And you have to talk about the tone uh, before you even really like build characters if you want to be successful. And that kind of ties back to our Session Zero episode where you want to help people be successful. You want to help yourself. You don't want a bunch of slapstick comedy characters. You don't want to run a D&D game for the Three Stooges when you're trying to play the next game of Lord of the Rings like have some examples of where you want to go with the game so you know is your monster of the week game going to be Scooby-Doo Buffy or Supernatural like what stage of the game are you at like because you guys could have you know a very serious system like VTM but you could play a very slapstick game if that's really what you wanted like that's not really what the system is there for but like it's all up to your storytelling your players to tell whatever story you want Obviously, jokes are gonna happen. We're all, uh, you know, about thirteen years old internally, uh, so we're gonna make some kind of ridiculous joke at the game.
3: You put too much stock in me. I am twelve on the inside.
2: You know what? I that is totally acceptable. Uh, we're all gonna make ridiculous jokes in the middle of a session. Uh, it's just our nature as as role players. Uh, I actually had a game of Pathfinder where we were all like really working hard to be like super straight faced as our our GM went through this big, long like monologue box text. And he mispronounced silence as sirens. And we all look. So we all did pretty good. But one of the guys behind us was painting and he's like sirens and he kind of like chuckled to himself and we all just lost it <laughs> uh like it's gonna happen you're gonna have those moments where you lose it but like mm-hmm. get it out of your system and then get back to whatever frame of mind you need to be in if you're telling a very serious story then you know get it out of your system and, ro- and move on mm-hmm. as far as like throughout the game uh lex already mentioned like having like specific voices and accents if you're comfortable like, that's not for everybody, and I totally understand that. It can help, you know, if you're dealing with a gr- uh, kind of grumpy, rough merchant. Like, having kind of a very gruff voice is is great. Uh, if not, y- use your volume or describe their mannerisms. Like, are they a very, like, active and emphatic talker? So they use a lot of hand motions and things like that. Or are they very, like, calm and demure? And so they just speak as they need to in order to get their point across. Kind of just, you know, bring the group in, like get them along for the ride. Yeah.
1: So for establishing themes and moods, one of the things that I experimented with and actually found a lot of success in was I kind of gave the overview as to what the game was going to be like. And then I made a list of character tropes that I wanted featured in uh, the game so i wanted there to be like one character that's specifically considered the rowdy one i wanted one character that was specifically kind of a calm spiritual personality and i just i i made like 12 of these and then i handed them to the players and i was like hey guys i want all of these in the game but as you make your characters decide who wants what and that will be your thing and what i did was i used those to kind of create moods during individual scenes Mm -hmm. so if there was like a rowdy character i would describe like some sort of noise and an argument in the scene kind of giving them an opportunity to go over and interact with it and it sort of creates the back and forth even before the first session and i i cannot recommend it enough
2: it, it does definitely uh, come across, like I not I didn't know that, but like having listened to several episodes and now knowing that it, it
0: definitely comes across and it's very well done. And tropes aren't, aren't a bad thing. A lot of people have this misconception of tropes in, well, in media, but at tabletops too, tropes aren't necessarily a bad thing because tropes bring an essence of familiarity mm-hmm. to a scene, right?
3: Mm-hmm. So tropes work for a reason.
0: Exactly. Being able to quickly identify, oh, that's the rowdy one, and that's the calm spiritual one, you're able to go into a scene with certain expectations, and it helps to remove a little bit of that cognitive work that you have to do when interacting in a scene, so you're able to more naturally experience it, right?
1: Yeah, it, it really helps to establish, like, between players what to expect from each other when their characters are interacting with. Mm-hmm. It lets them kind of slide right into their rules and have a good time.
2: And it also lets you subvert them. Like, you've done a lot of the heavy lifting already. Like, hey, this is normally this person's thing, but it makes those other scenes that you have to pull that person into a lot more meaningful. Like, hey, this is also their wheelhouse.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can also make life a lot easier for uh, first-time players who have no idea how the game is played. And they're like, oh God, role playing, what do? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. There's there's some character tropes that you can work with.
1: Absolutely. As a, a really kind of quick uh, example, I had one of my players who in their backstory, they came from a very, very dangerous group of characters. Uh, the rest of the party knows very little about them, but they themselves are kind of considered the aggressive rowdy one who's pretty much comfortable with like taking anyone on. Mm-hmm. And I revealed, in a scene that this group of characters were in town. And without really needing to explain who they were to the rest of the players, they kind of knew what his normal behavior was like. So when he turns to the group and is, you know, sighing and says to them, I have, we need to go. I have, I have a bad feeling about this. I'm really worried. And all of the characters start looking between each other And they start getting this like sinking feeling Mm -hmm. and then the characters kind of back off. And it really creates this a good, good dramatic moment.
0: And and that's the essence of drama at the end of the day, right? Is your expectations not being met. And that's what drives drama forward in any kind of media. So we went with the John Wick example earlier, Mm -hmm. right? You've got the blue light, you've got the red light. The entirety of John Wick 1 was John Wick being a badass and being untouchable. So in John Wick 2, when you have him on the back foot, it's this dissonant moment for the viewer, and it gets your heart pumping a little bit. It's the drama of the scene is, oh shit, this untouchable dude is now suddenly brought down to the plane of mortals, right? And not not all of your characters are going to be John Wick in any game that you play, but The point still stands that once your characters are put into a situation where their expectations are not being met as intended, it immediately drives up that tension and drama for them. So putting your characters in a situation where the tough guy is suddenly really quiet and reserved, or, you know, flip that on its head, the quiet person is red in the face, you know, bloodthirsty, those are the moments that people remember um so in the game that i run uh, i have a character who's basically got the jason Bourne backstory i woke up i have no idea who i am um some very kind people took me in and kind of raised me into a completely different person right Mm. he starts going down this adventurer's path and he gets like these really violent muscle memories where he's hurting people a lot more than he intends to it's going beyond self-defense And he's kind of on this journey of re-self-discovery without knowing anything about himself. He goes all the way across the country, he gets into a bunch of scuffs, and he finally identifies his new identity, right? And then he meets his wife from his past life. And that moment, uh, for me as a GM, it's one of my favorite moments that I've ever run, that moment, the stunned silence that went on for a solid 10 seconds when this woman said, I mean, I married you, was gold. The entire table felt it, and it's been a resonant moment in all sessions after that because everybody's first thought is, what else don't I know? Mm -hmm. So being able to identify moments like that just through, you know, setting up a scene or setting up expectations and then flipping them on their head is a really, really powerful thing and doing that from a session zero in your player's backstory and as a table, setting expectations for one another, brings out a lot of those dramatic moments a lot more frequently. So I- I've never done that before, Lex. That's a fantastic idea. Any game that I do now, I'm gonna I'm gonna start thinking about that. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: I can't recommend it enough. It's it, it really, really worked out for the group of players. And a lot of them were really new to the setting in the game itself. Mm-hmm. So the, those, like, gave them ideas on what they would be most comfortable with in terms of concepts. Mm-hmm.
0: And it obviously worked. I never would have known. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to yeah. the show, it sounds like y'all have been doing this for years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I at least would have guessed that the majority of the group was at least familiar with VTM.
0: So I have I
1: ran that game on and off since I was, like, 15 mm. But some of the other players are very, very new to Vampire, and there are times where I'm about to introduce a concept, and we kind of pause for a while and have these quick conversations about what it means to the world mm-hmm. and then we jump back into it, and it ends up actually being sometimes them explaining it uh for listeners mm-hmm. yeah and so since then, I think they've all become really, really familiar.
2: yeah, it feels very natural for sure. As far as a couple traps, I think, for new GMs especially, uh, you might be tempted to go with, like, sound effects, for example. Uh, Sound effects are very, like, can contribute a lot to a scene, and they may be helpful in specific instances, but don't spend, like, 20 minutes trying to cue up the right sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have it, great. Roll with it. If you're not ready,
0: don't lose the dramatic moment trying to hunt for it. Or... You can just use stock Hanna Barbera sound effects from nineteen nineties Saturday morning cartoons. Nineteen nineties Hanna Barbera is gonna go a lot further back than that, man. Um, I know. I'm I'm thinking. Oh, geez, when were those old like Scooby Doo cartoons? The sixties,
3: seventies? Was it? Oh yeah, my god! Always... <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: I guess I was just watching yeah, them. they around for So,
2: Hunter, you sweet summer child. Uh, yep. I know. I know. <laughs> Uh, music... That's music getting is... cut. I can't, I can't embarrass myself <laughs> like this. No, great that's C- D- just went down. Damn it. Oh. Uh, uh, music can be very similar. Uh, I think it can really help. Uh, so I ran a Dread game for my, my usual Sunday game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ran, uh, like some very, like, creepy stock horror movie music underneath it. Uh, cause it was a slasher movie style Dread, uh, game. But like there are also some tracks that I hadn't listened to, and there was lots of like weird people like talking or yelling, and it's just very d- distracting. Like don't uh, don't let it become an issue. I also know there are people who are very sensitive to like a lot of like noise and sound, and so like be aware of your table when you're doing that kind of stuff because it can really help set a mood or it can totally take people out of the game.
3: Oh yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a discussion to have before you introduce yeah. it.
3: Yeah, cuz um the first game that I ever DM'd for, I did not implement like outside music or anything until the final boss battle and mm-hmm. I put together a YouTube playlist of just creepy moody soundtracks because it was in a creepy moody place. Mm-hmm. And um Learned from that to, A, talk with your players about the expectations and the music can be way more distracting than helpful because we, we had a teenage player at the table and it was the rest of the players were mostly adults, but the teenager would pause anytime that the track would move ahead to the next song in the list and he'd be like oh wait this is from left for dead isn't it oh wait this is from legend (laughs) of zelda isn't it oh wait this is from this game isn't it and i'm like yes okay it's your turn
0: (laughs) unintended side effect i really want to know how those youtube ads treated you
3: uh oh man
1: it's the youtube ads that killed it yeah actually i had players that loved it we were doing uh, exalted Ooh. and i they were getting ready to go into this boss fight and i had spent days preparing this like really weird set of mechanics for mm-hmm. it and we started playing music and i played a bunch of final fantasy like uh, boss fight themes yeah. mm-hmm. and it was it went so well they're having a great time and then every time everyone really got into it it would be some weird geico commercial <laughs> oh, no. that would start off <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, Garrett Garrett's one of the guys on on the podcast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he's in the fight, and he's like getting rid of. He's got like his fist in the air, and he's like posing, and he's about to yell his like really cool combo that he wants to do, and then bam, Geico commercial, and it just, <laughs> just crushed crushing. It. it did not. Yeah, it does not work out.
0: Nothing gets your blood pumping like saving fifteen percent or more on car insurance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and I. And some of the players, they, didn't, they seemed kind of fine with it, but mm-hmm. I, I saw the pain in his eyes when <laughs> when he didn't get his moment.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a chunk of why I signed up for. I know YouTube Premium gets a lot of slack from a lot of people, but I got it so that I don't have to deal with ads on the big TV when I put on, like, Mystery Science Theater 3000 or some shit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Which, by the way, we can swear on this podcast, just throwing that out there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you can say fuck if you want to. It's crazy.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: but Whatever works.
3: Yeah. But I decided that YouTube Premium was worth it so that if I do decide that I want to put together another playlist for my players, that I won't have ads playing in the middle of a boss fight or something.
1: That is a worthy investment. Yeah, It's commitment
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, on a level that I don't know I'm ready to make as a DM.
0: We just we just do roll twenty, so I just use their in in app music library, which isn't always great, but it gets the job done.
1: There's a bunch of different soundtracks that you can play that are on uh, Spotify and mm-hmm. YouTube, mm-hmm. and I was running a D and game and uh, at my friend's house, and they uh, hated it. They did not enjoy <laughs> the theme musics at all and i didn't know what i wanted to do because i really wanted to play music we ended up doing a bunch of classic rock songs (laughs) during like this weird like boss fight and i remember uh journey playing (laughs) while they're having like their crazy dragon fight and that absolutely worked out um it it felt so good, and and I, I I recommend definitely trying that if you ever get the chance.
3: Classic rock ah. is always a good go-to. Not gonna lie.
1: One of
2: the few VTM games I've actually got to play in uh, and and enjoyed was uh, set in the '80s, and so literally our our storyteller was like, "Hey, like this is the year that it's set in, like." pick out some songs that you think your character would have listened to or and so that was that was pretty cool to kind of like set the mood and kind of the general time period
1: especially for the 80s
2: a lot of good anthemic songs
3: your precious 80s (laughs) I
2: I literally was barely alive in the 80s but uh, I I went back and did my music research it was I wasn't
0: alive in the 80s (laughs) I wasn't even an idea in the 80s Uh, so getting, getting us back on topic, music can be a very, very solid effector when it comes to tone. But I think at the end of the day, uh, image is going to be the most important thing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And if you can't draw maps or you don't have painted minis or you don't have a beholder mini or, or whatever you're doing, it all comes down to your voice. So for example of how imagery affects movies in a, in, in a really profound way, I like to look at Ratatouille. Ratatouille brings an abstract thing like taste Mm -hmm. and gives it visual representation in the film. And it brings a whole other idea to the film that, you know, you can have a cross sensory experience when it comes to um, an experience because I'm good with words. (laughs) So so I try to bring that philosophy to my table however I can how can I cross-sensory experience my players? Mm -hmm. So how can my voice bring an aspect of taste or, uh, you know, sound to the players? And, you know, Tolkien did this a lot uh, in in The Hobbit. He used real-world things to describe fantastical elements of his novels. Mm -hmm. So elephants, as we know them, don't exist in Lord of the Rings or in Middle-earth but he would use elephants as a size descriptor in The Hobbit to describe how vast something is. So don't be afraid to do that, you know? So describe uh, the bard playing in your local tavern as, you know, he looks like Bon Jovi opening for... I don't know kiss at a rock concert he's got the big curly hair and you know the weird headband that has a design that nobody would be caught dead wearing today Hmm. Um, he's got the 90's bus print uh, shorts on whatever Mm -hmm. use real world items to describe things in your world just to give, you know, I've mentioned it a couple times, that essence of familiarity to your players. It's going to bring them more presently into the world, and it's going to give them something to latch onto, Like, hey, I know what that is without being too distracting. And if your game's a little bit more lighthearted, you can make it a little bit goofier, and then it brings that kind of lightness to the game too. But using those cross-sensory experiences are really important. If you describe something as tasting like, you know, fantasy name fruit... Nobody knows what fantasy name fruit tastes like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So give them something like, you know, it tastes like an apple dipped in honey. Something really simple, something people can relate to. Yeah. Another big part of that, though, is word choice. Shit isn't always a good describer for something that smells bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are a lot of different things that smell bad. Yeah. Don't describe them all as smelling like shit. Otherwise, your world is going to smell really shitty.
3: Yeah, uh, like a garbage disposal drenched in leftover potatoes. There you go. <laughs>
2: it's very specific.
3: It is very specific, and it is totally not something that happened in my apartment the other day.
2: I was going to say, Kelsey, is your garbage disposal working? Do we need to call the maintenance man?
3: I actually don't have a garbage disposal. <laughs>
2: Well,
0: there you go. That's why your sink smells like that. What did yes. I tell you? This is further evidence that Ohio doesn't really exist.
3: <laughs> it really doesn't. There. It's just a figment of everyone's imagination. That's why everyone's trying to run away.
2: It's right next to Springfield.
3: <laughs> In <laughs> fairness, my sink smells better. Now I cleaned it.
0: Good. I'm it. you, Kelsey. Good job.
3: <laughs> I had to adults.
0: So, varied description is always going to be a good thing, because that brings just that small bit of contrast. If you always describe something the same way, if you always describe different things the same way, everything's going to come off the same to your players. Mm -hmm. So, when you're using verbal imagery, again, it doesn't have to be super complex or verbose, try not to recycle the same two or three descriptors try to diversify a little bit in things like dnd or a star wars setting it's a little bit easier because you can be like oh instead of a human i've got a Drell. that's a mass effect thing not star wars
3: but <laughs> <laughs> i was about to say like i don't really watch star wars and even i know that's not a star wars race <laughs>
0: Instead of a human uh, playing music in your Star Wars cantina, you've got a Twi'lek. Instead of you know a elven bard, you've got a dragonborn bard in D D. But in something that's a little bit more less fantastical, something like a um, like a vampire, The Masquerade, which is set on Earth in relative to present time, you have to kind of reach out a little bit more and find those different descriptors uh, wherever they are. So lists are great, guys. (laughs) Lists are a great thing. I have so many Excel sheets with just descriptors and names and uh, locations for me to pull from at any given time. And that's Not a bad thing. Don't feel bad for using the same thing. Just don't use it every single time. Um, And your players are going to do a lot of the legwork there too. They're not going to imagine the exact same place every single time unless you describe it exactly the same every single time. Yeah. So differentiate some minor details here and there are going to go a long way towards your player's idea of the world around them. Yeah. Um, So a good example of this. For Halloween... I ran a horror game in a free league system called and I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. Uh, V-A-E-S-E-N. It's a Swedish thing. Oh, I, okay. don't, I don't speak Swedish. But it's basically a monster hunting game, right? And it's supposed to be very gothic horror. So I was like, okay, how am I going to bring these horror elements into a castle? Well, I don't waste my time describing castle because people have an idea of what a castle looks like so i'm like you're in a castle it's made of gray stone uh you go inside everything's really dusty and dark okay job's done there that's our umbrella description so how do i bring the horror elements into it i didn't at first i let them explore the castle as it was it's a dusty decrepit castle there are uh you know dead or dead corpses there are corpses which are typically dead, all around the castle, covered in dust. They've been there a while. Doesn't look like they've been moved. And then they go into the cellar. And as they walk into the cellar, you know, they're running their hand along the walls because it's really dark. They're walking by torchlight. And then they feel dampness on the wall. And the texture changes. And the smell changes just a little bit. And then they hold the torch up, and they are inside of giant beast that is fused with the castle literally walking down its throat and allowing them to experience the mundane and then bringing them into just this it's pink and fleshy instead of gray and stone completely set them off Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. just one or two quick little changes into something unnatural can go a long way towards changing your entire idea of the world around you as a player so as a gm don't be afraid to make those minor changes it doesn't need to be you know completely different than the world around them it can be just one or two teeny tiny changes from healthy trees to rotten trees Mm -hmm. or from you know a clean house to a dirty house that brings a completely different idea of the world around them uh, to the player's mind
3: yeah i would like to add two That I'm looking at my browser and I have a little tab bookmarked for describing emotion, which I saved that because I can have a hard time reading social cues sometimes, and I sometimes cannot tell if somebody is just embarrassed or if they're sad, and sometimes just describing that can be difficult, so... And and also just thinking about some novels that I've read where it's like, oh, so-and-so turns red in the face. And it's like, okay, but that's overly cliche. We've heard that descriptor for somebody being embarrassed before. How else can people show embarrassment? Maybe they don't make eye contact. Maybe they start flustering over their words. Uh, stuff like that. Just being able to have a list of other like behaviors or descriptors pertaining to emotion has helped a lot with describing npcs especially because my campaign that i'm running right now is so interaction and role play heavy they <laughs> kind of need that so don't yeah. be afraid mm-hmm. to reference your lists
0: all right well i think at this point in time we've had not an- awesome time discussing this topic, and we went into places that I didn't even expect to, like music theory, um, which is great. In the sink.
1: And rotten potatoes. And
0: potatoes in a garbage disposal. That we didn't know we didn't know. Which I will be using. No
1: garbage disposal.
0: No. The more you know. Yes. And the fact that, you know, finding more evidence that Ohio isn't real. Um,
3: we, are, we are exposing the facts in this podcast.
0: The hard-hitting journalism. <laughs> so... I want to invite all of you, my co-hosts for the day. Do you have any last thoughts, anything that we didn't cover or touch on or anything that's uh, occurred to you that that wasn't necessarily on track? Um, Do we have any last thoughts before we do our sign offs?
3: You know what? I'll go ahead and add that if there's a particular narrative voice that resonates with you, especially when you're first starting to GM and... You're like, I I don't know what narrative voice to use. And you watch somebody else's GMing and you're like, I really like what they're doing. It's okay if you copy them a little bit or at least Mm -hmm. like strive to mimic them because eventually you you will find your voice. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, So I think one thing that really helps, at least helps me, and and it may help other GMs, uh, when you're describing a scene, Think of something you've seen or you've experienced and work off of that. What are the, you know, what are the first things that you noticed when you were in that really smelly basement, you know, at your family's holiday party, like, oh, man, this is terrible. Like, what stuck out to you? Like, what were the things that really, like, trigger when you think about that memory? And use that. Use the things you saw,
0: the things you smelled, like, paint that picture with those experiences. Actually, a really good sensory experience that I like to use when I'm describing um, something sticky. <laughs> this is a bit of a uh, weird intro to this idea. Like but, a stick? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, like a stick. Sticky like a uh, stick. No. Okay. Um, no, no. But so I come from like very white trash Texas roots. Oh no And, and um, one of the earliest like sensory experiences that I remember having is the feeling of beer being spilled on me. And if if this is never something that's happened to you, it is like a five senses thing. Beer is sticky. It smells gross. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the sound of your skin, like sticking to one another, like as you try to wipe it off, it's a really weird all five senses experience having cheap beer spilled on you. Um, So that's something that I draw on when I tried to describe on the body things is, okay, well, what does it sound when skin touches skin? What's it smell like? Because that smell is going to follow you mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, you know, how does it feel when you're not touching yourself, trying to clean it? So having those experiential sensory experiences, because again, I'm really good with words, um, <laughs> It can go a long way towards helping you describe things for sure. But with all of that done and my mastery of the English language and history uh, on display, Lex, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Actually, uh,
1: there was one thing I was going to throw out. Yes, please. Um, So extras Mm -hmm. are also some of the best tools that you can use to describe a scene. And by that, I mean people who are not important to the story Mm -hmm. but are in a given area reacting to what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, uh, like the bard concept had been mentioned, right? Yeah. And the bard is supposed to come across as this total rock star. Mm -hmm. Well, just as important as the way the bard is reacting, it's important to kind of consider, you know, whether or not there's, you know, young women flaunting towards him and people are cheering for them. And that also really does go a long way for setting a scene mm-hmm. or like, safe characters enter a town, right? And the town has all these weird ongoing problems with bandits. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, all of the townsfolk start rushing inside. They're closing their doors. They're closing up windows. It's like, it's like, you know, Western.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah
1: that also really does go a long way towards uh, setting the mood for a scene. So I was just going to, that's, that's something to consider.
2: Absolutely. That's, as GMs, we're kind of, if you compare us to video games, which is not quite the same, but like we're kind of parsing how
0: the world responds to those players. And that's, that's huge.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. A populated area suddenly being empty is a sure sign of trouble.
1: Mm-hmm. Or they, you know, they give a certain character a bad look, like they don't like paladins. Yeah, you can convey a lot with that. Yeah.
0: Yes, absolutely.
3: I'm glad that you went with paladins instead of the usual D and D trope of tieflings.
1: Everyone loves tieflings.
3: Everyone yeah. loves tieflings.
2: <laughs> They've got horns. so it's not like? To, not to like. <laughs> I told
0: you we're all thirteen <laughs> or twelve. So <inside>.
2: there's <laughs> always it's always gonna happen.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I find tieflings really funny because. I think in D and D lore, they're supposed to be like only shades of red and purple, but then everybody's like, "Yeah, I want my tiefling to be canary yellow." I haven't really seen a red tiefling yet. No, so. me neither. That's the funny thing is like canonically they're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In <laughs> None our of ongoing game,
2: mine is gray. <laughs> He's got like deep, like gray skin. Yeah. Works for me.
3: Well, the thing about RPGs is that they're a lot like this out of print board game that I have called Dungeon Dice. And Dungeon Dice has a set of rules, and when I played it as a kid, there was one rule that we never implemented any time that my sisters and I played it. And uh, when I introduced it to my roommates, they heard the rule that was originally part of the game, and they were like, yeah, nah, we're not going to play it that way. So like, you know, like board games, RPGs, you can be really flexible with the rules if you want to.
0: Yeah, it's the golden rule. Yeah. yeah, or Uno. You know, it's the same thing. I don't think anybody plays Uno the right way.
3: There's a right way to play Uno.
0: There's a rules book. <laughs> yeah, and I've never played it by the rules ever in my entire. You life. Uh,
2: you 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 can't <laughs> stack draws. By the way, uh, that's here. not an actual thing. Yeah, it's not a thing. Uh, you you uh, draw your cards and skip your turn according to the, the Grand Rule Book of Uno. Yeah. That, but that's, that's a bad rule. That's so. a bad rule. It's, not,
0: it's not fun. It's not exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but with all of that said and done, thank you guys for joining us. Lex, especially. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Where can we find you and Path of Night on the internet?
1: Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, you can find us anywhere that you get your... Um... Oh my goodness. Podcasts. i talking about words all night. Now I forgot the word. Podcasts <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh yeah we're there
0: all right wonderful if you have not and i said this at the top of the show but i'll say it again because they're fantastic if you have not listened to path of night do yourself a favor go listen to path of night the opening scene to episode one of that show hooked me and i've been a weekly listener ever since so it has my full endorsement as much as that's worth um they're well into their second season every episode's worth listening to and uh, we're at a very high drama moment that I am waiting anxiously for. So, <laughs> with all of that said and done, thank you all for listening. Fourth leg is is back and rolling, and we will see you in two weeks. Yeah. Bye. Bye. You, thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the fourth leg, a show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. You can find Kelsey at Duncan Theo on Twitter and at kelsey, K-E-L-C-I-D, crawford.com. You can find Joe at JCD0818. And you can find me, Hunter, at skunkasaurus, S-K-U-N-K-O-S-O-U-R-O-U-S. To get in contact with us about the show or to leave us any questions, reach out to at the fourth leg on Twitter or email the fourth leg pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. But you know, '80s songs like you know, NSYNC and "Backstreet Boys" oh, no. definitely set a scene. Though. Oh, oh no. No. <laughs> you and you and your your time bias are that one was me. intentional. Oh, that one was God. intentional, <laughs> listeners. God damn it.